0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at org. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Father, we ask that we too might have our eyes opened, that you might touch us now through your word and allow us to see the truth that you have proclaimed. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I have to be honest with you, I was actually tempted to skip this passage. If you remember, in Matthew 9, we already talked about Jesus healing to blind men. We kind of did this already. And in Matthew's Gospel, we're right on the cusp of Matthew 21, which opens with the triumphal entry. And how cool would it have been to preach the triumphal entry on Reformation Day? So I was tempted uh, not to literally skip over it, but to say to Pastor Dan, who preached last week, hey, Dan, at the end of your sermon, why don't you say a few words about this text and then we'll call it done. You've covered it. And then next Sunday, I can preach the triumphal entry on reformation day and what a triumphal sermon that would have been but that's not what we're doing because i reflect on this passage and i recognize that that instinct of mine that's exactly what the crowds were thinking too we've done this already we've covered this ground and something actually pretty big is about to happen And it's cool and everything that that Jesus can heal the blind, but right now I'd really like to get to the triumphal entry. The Messiah, the Messianic King, the Son of David, is about to enter into the city of David and claim his throne. And we've been waiting for this, and I'd kind of like to see it happen. And if you guys could just be quiet and, and we could move on to the big event, that would be great. And when, as a pastor, you find yourself feeling as the crowd feels in moments like this, you should always pause, especially when it seems that Jesus didn't feel that way. Jesus didn't see it that way. Jesus took time to do this, which means that to Jesus, this was worth it. Even though he was about to enter into Jerusalem, it was worth it to Jesus to stop and do this. And it should be worth it to us to take the time and to learn from it. Based on Jesus' willingness to do this, I think it's fair to say that something important happens here. And for the sake of the church, for the sake of our church, we should stop and consider what it is. We should stop and ask ourselves, why was this so important? Why do this when what you're about to do is so great, so big? So that's what we're going to do. To set the scene a little bit, Jesus is ending a journey. As Pastor Dan pointed out last week, we've been following Jesus on a trek to Jerusalem. And he's covered a lot of ground. He started Off in the hinterlands, he came south, he crossed over to the far side of the Jordan, and now he's come across the Jordan through Jericho, he's approaching Jerusalem. As they went out of Jericho, Matthew writes, a great crowd followed him. So Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and the route that he's taking, this is a pilgrim's path. Like There are a lot of people making this journey because they want to spend the Passover in Jerusalem. They're heading towards Jerusalem for this purpose, to be in the city of David at this important time. Uh, this probably, the Jericho they're passing through, is not the old Jericho that Joshua conquered, but the newer, slightly in a different location Jericho that, that approaches as you enter into Jerusalem. But even so... Uh, you're going through a town called Jericho. You have to be thinking about the parallels when Joshua led the, the people of Israel through Jericho into the promised land. Well, Jesus' name is Joshua, right? It's just the, the Greek version of that Old Testament name. Jesus is meant to be seen, uh, as a kind of Joshua. The old Joshua understood as a type of Jesus to come, the one who will bring his people into the land of promise and that 's what he's doing here as he approaches Jerusalem. The great crowds are not necessarily on the road because Jesus is on the road, but finding him there the the word spreads, and suddenly people realize what a big deal this is that that Jesus This man who seems to be the one who seems to be the coming king is actually going to Jerusalem to do, I don't know what, to establish his throne, to throw out the Romans, to inaugurate his kingdom. Whatever it is, they're excited to see it happen, and a great crowd follows him. People now are are in his train following him to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And then the interruption, right? Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. One of these beggars we know from a parallel passage is is Bartimaeus. These guys, they're blind. They're on the side of the road, probably begging for alms to support themselves. So that's typically what they're asking for. Right? They're not there as the others are to witness the triumphal entry because they can't bear witness. They can't see. So the thing that everybody else is following Jesus in order to see, they are excluded from by virtue of their infirmity. And yet they sense what's going on. They hear the excitement and they cry out for mercy. That cry of theirs, they address him, they address him as son of David, a messianic title. They're not the first blind men to do that. Back in Matthew 9, that, that first set of two blind men who come to Jesus, they're the first in Matthew's gospel, the first of three instances where Jesus is addressed as son of David. This one that we have here is the third and final one. It brings that to completion, this declaration the son of David, uh, these are the words will be on the crowd's lips soon. Like in chapter 21, everybody will be saying this, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. That these men who will be excluded from witnessing this great thing are already saying what everybody else will be saying moments from now. In chapter 21, they are first. They're asking for mercy from the king, the Messiah, the son of David. Interestingly, timing-wise, they're asking for this mercy before he enters Jerusalem, before he enters into his kingdom. They have a confidence in who he is and in his power that allows them to ask him, to, to grant them something that he has yet to accomplish the work of earning, as it were. It demonstrates the faith that they possess, these blind beggars. There is a significance to blindness in Scripture. Blindness as an infirmity has a symbolic value in the Bible. Blindness is a picture of our own spiritual inability in the same way that seeing is a metaphor for spiritual awakening. Jesus himself, when he explains unbelief, In John's Gospel, in John chapter 12, he quotes these words of Isaiah. Isaiah 60, verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. So that idea of blindness being associated with spiritual darkness, spiritual inability, comes out of Old Testament prophecy. He quoted that same passage, Isaiah 60, already in Matthew thirteen as well. Maybe the most famous example of this though, uh this, this use of blindness as a metaphor would come from John Newton's hymn Amazing Grace. If you remember the first verse of that hymn, right at the end, uh, he writes these words was blind, but now I see. Uh, he doesn't mean it literally. He's speaking spiritually, that in unbelief he was spiritually blind. Uh, in John Newton's case, in the days of that spiritual blindness, he was a slave trader. He was a man who performed uh, shameful and 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 horrible sin. As he realized later, when he had eyes to see, curing blindness is also significant as well. If blindness is a picture of our spiritual inability, curing blindness in prophecy becomes a sign of the Messianic King. This is Isaiah again, in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So you'll recognize the Messiah. You'll know that he's the one because he performs these works and among them is curing the blind. It's interesting too, that cry of mercy from those blind men. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. That request, that cry of these blind men, again, is is something we encounter multiple times in the Gospels, um, becomes the Kyrie eleison of the church. For ages afterwards, when we sing Kyrie Eleison, when we sing Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, it's as if their cry has become our cry. And it's appropriate that just as Jesus was the only one who could give them what they were crying out for, that we recognize that he is the only one, the son of David, who can give us the mercy that we cry out for as well. the crowd, Matthew says, rebuked them, telling them to be silent. That rebuke is fascinating to me when you think about it. As people, I think oftentimes who who crave a, a sense of assurance, if you had the opportunity for Jesus to perform a miracle before your very eyes, would you pass that up? If I said, Oh, next Sunday, Jesus will be with us. And one of the things he's going to be doing is, is healing the blind. Uh, would you say, you know what? Actually, I'm busy that weekend. And we were going to go camping. I don't think I'm going to make it to that one. Or would you say, actually, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in that sort of thing. I, I'd rather these blind people just be quiet. Like, like pay attention to worship, okay? Like don't just cry out like that. It's, it's disruptive. I suspect most of us would be like, yeah, let's see that. I would love to see Jesus do something like that. And yet they say, be quiet, be quiet. We've seen Jesus do this kind of stuff before. We're looking for something more at this point. That rebuke is astonishing to me, but there's a lesson that we can learn from that rebuke and also from the response to the rebuke because the blind man responds and they don't listen. Matthew says, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out, all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Now again, I I pointed out there's something interesting, how they anticipate the, the cry of the crowds at their triumphal entry. They're already calling on the Son of David before these other people are doing it. Weirdly, the crowds are also anticipating something from the triumphal entry as well, because in the triumphal entry, In the very next chapter, the people will be crying out, as the blind man do now, to the son of David, and the Pharisees will be telling them to be silent. So ironically, here, before that happens, the crowd of followers, the people who are following after Jesus, find themselves in the role of Pharisees, telling the people who cry out for mercy to just be Silent. They resent the distraction. They just want to get on with the main event. Why? Why this rebuke? Well, if you think about it, this series that we are concluding today in Matthew 18, 19, and 20 actually began with a very similar weird note where we see children coming to Jesus and his inner circle of disciples saying, stay away kids. Jesus is busy, right? Like fencing Jesus so that the kids cannot distract him because in the disciples' eyes, they are insignificant. They are beneath his notice. He's got important stuff that he needs to do. And now, not surprisingly, at the end of this series of, of, of chapters, nobody's learned the lesson, right? Once again, people in need are coming to Jesus and his well-meaning followers are saying, actually, no. Let me stop you right there. Jesus does not have time for this. That seems to be the motive. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. The Messianic king is going to ascend to his throne in the city of David, and nobody wants to delay that. Everybody wants to do it, to to stay focused on it, even if that means passing up an opportunity to witness another miracle. Like they'd rather just move on and see this big thing. These beggars... Essentially, I have become a nuisance to them. In fact, the fact that they're beggars might have something to do with that, right? That they are contemptible. There are people in the streets who are, are, are begging for money, right? Makes their interruption of Jesus's journey, especially offensive, right? Maybe it would have been different for these followers if a centurion had come up and said, pardon me, Jesus, I need a little help. Or maybe a delegation from the synagogue had approached Jesus to to sort of honor him. That would have been different. These are just beggars. right? These are just people who should keep their mouths shut and stay over there on the margins. And so we can see in this quick dismissal some of the attitudes of the crowd. But the fact that Jesus takes time when his followers don't shows that he thinks this is important, even if they don't. If you realize that, what does it teach us? What does it say to us? Think to those of us who are in need, those of us who can identify with these men as they cry out, this shows how much you matter to Jesus. Even if you don't receive the welcome that you should from his followers. If you have any doubt, if you tell yourself my problems are too small for him, or I am too insignificant for him, this should correct that impression. Because there were a lot of people who followed him who thought that, but they were wrong. Jesus took these men seriously. He listened to them when others wouldn't. And that shows how worthy he considered their need. So to those who are in need, Jesus' actions here show us how much you matter to him. And also to those of us who are following Jesus, this shows how much the needs around us should matter to us as well, because they do matter to him. That should be a lesson to us. If it's important to Jesus to stop in the midst of redemptive history, and do something as small as ministering to these blind men, that sort of thing should matter to us too. That shouldn't seem like a distraction to us because it doesn't to Jesus. I love the reaction of the blind men. They're more tenacious than their adversaries. Maybe they've had to become tenacious because of their condition, but when they're told to be quiet, they just get louder They cry out all the more. One commentator points out this reaction demonstrates their faith. That when people have faith and they cry out to Jesus and they're told to shut up or they're told to wait, because of the strength of their faith, they keep going because they believe that he will listen. They believe that he will answer. This response of theirs teaches us something too as people of faith When we cry out and we don't get an immediate answer, cry out all the more. In the face of opposition from the outside or from the inside, cry out all the more. To those who are discouraged by the crowds, to those who are discouraged by the church, the example of these men says persevere, cry out all the more. To those Who are unjustly rebuked. Who are unjustly dismissed because of their own condition or circumstances. Jesus says, keep your hope. Jesus' actions say, keep your hope in Him. Cry out to Him. Keep your hope in Him, not in the crowds. Not in the crowds. Jesus stops. When he hears these men, he calls to them and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And when I read that, I want our response to be, let our eyes be opened too. For that to be our cry to Jesus too. It was a group of terrorists who took over a school, a boarding school, because a procession was traveling by underneath the windows of the building, a peace procession, and the terrorists had a plan to use this vantage point to fire a rocket into the car that was holding the dignitaries and and assassinate them. But the students inside the school discovered the plan and worked together to thwart the terrorists. This is not a scenario ripped from the headlines. This is the plot to a 1970s television show, Thriller, which Pastor Mark made his wife watch. She loved it. The thing is, in the olden days, before special effects, the only way you had to, like, keep people hooked was through plot devices, through situations that were constantly twisting and turning. The twist in this scenario, the school <laughs> that the terrorists have taken over is a school for the blind and so a group of blind students has to rally together to thwart this evil plan and against all odds by working in partnership they manage to do it and in the final scene of the episode, the three principal students standing in the doorway hear the newscaster describing the successful procession as it goes forward. And he's enthusing about how wonderful this was, what an incredible sight it was to witness, how lucky we all are to have seen it as the camera focuses on the unseeing eyes of the heroes who made it all possible. And the irony of that is profound. That they longed to witness something that they could not witness. It was so wonderful. It could not have happened if not for them. But because of their blindness, they could not see it. Jesus calls these blind men over and he says, what can I do for you? And they don't say, give us money. They don't say, help us out. They say, give us sight. Open our eyes. We want to see you. We want to witness what is about to take place. We want to see it as well. That's what they're saying to Jesus. The triumphal entry, it's about to happen. They know people are excited. Something incredible is about to take place. They want their eyes to be opened. They want to witness it as well. Matthew says, Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. That reaction that not only were they healed, but they followed him shows that that their desire is a desire to see him, a desire to follow after him. But this is a beautiful moment if you just stop and think about it. Like if you don't look at it for lessons, you don't contemplate the theology, but you just think about this moment as it unfolds. These men who are crying out, who are ignored and rebuked, but Jesus in the midst of the crowd hears their cry and calls them over and asks, what do you want me to do for you? When they tell him, open our eyes, he just does it. These men who everyone is telling to be quiet, Jesus hears. These men who everybody else's hearts are hardened against, Jesus has pity. He has compassion on them. These men who are untouchable, Jesus touches and makes them whole. It's a beautiful thing. I said earlier, this scene conjures these echoes, these memories of of Joshua and Jericho, but actually there's another Old Testament moment that this echoes for me, which is the advance of Jehu. If you remember in 2 Kings chapter 9, one of those especially bloodthirsty chapters, I highly commend it to you. Jehu, as he approaches the city to topple the son of evil King Ahab, leaves the army encampment without his army. He's in such a hurry to do it. What does he do for armies? Well, every time they send people to capture him or inquire about him, he says, fall in behind me. And his army grows and grows and grows as he advances. And I picture Jesus' march to Jerusalem in a similar way. Jesus, who's been telling people, keep this quiet. He heals them and says, don't go spread the word about me. Jesus, who's been, been talking to his inner circle. But now suddenly, as he's approaching Jerusalem, he's healing people and then they fall in behind him. And they, they they make up this multitude, this crowd who follow in His wake. Jesus, through mercy, restores the broken and builds them into His cloud of witnesses. And then He brings them to Jerusalem to witness what He will do. And unlike those blind men in Matthew 9 who were healed and told not to talk about it, Jesus heals these men out in the open In public, these restored witnesses follow him. This should open your eyes. When you think about this, it should open your eyes and point to some lessons for us as a church. That's been the point of the last few chapters in Matthew: is to look at how these incidents speak to the life of the church. I think, as I reflect on the ground we've covered, and I think about this moment here, it's a reminder that mercy and restoration are the things that matter most in the life of the church. And so as the church, we have to make room for them. We have to focus on them and make time for mercy, no matter what else is happening. No matter how busy we are, no matter how big our dreams are or our ambitions If we don't have time to pay attention to the needs all around us, we're doing it wrong. We're not doing it the way that Jesus did it. So it's important for us to make time for mercy and restoration. And part of what that means is that we have to overcome sometimes that knee-jerk impulse to rebuke. You will always find an excuse not to stop and help if you're looking for one. If that's what you're looking for, you'll always find it. And you will always find a justification to correct or rebuke anyone in need so that it's their fault and you don't need to do anything about it. You will always find those excuses if you're looking for them. And there may be times in your life and in the life of the church where it is right and appropriate to keep the main thing the main thing, to stay focused on the big work of the church. And there may be times when it is appropriate and necessary to correct someone in error. But because those things may be necessary or appropriate at times, it's all the easier to use them as excuses. Because we know that sometimes we should be focused on the big things. We know sometimes that people in need are wrong in what they believe or in what they say or how they've understood their circumstances. We can easily Twist those true things and come up with a rationale to feel righteous for looking away, to feel righteous for, for answering the request for bread by giving a stone or worse, a serpent. Now, once we see this in ourselves, once we see how easy it is to find excuses not to do what Jesus does, once we see that that's our tendency, then we have to Correct it. We have to work hard not to go in that direction. Like, we'll always look for these excuses to be like the crowd. What we need to do is is push ourselves to instead be like Christ. Sometimes the people who can profit most from the rebuke are not the blind, they're not the beggars, they're the eager followers who discover, much to their surprise, that their priorities and Jesus' priorities are not the same. I'd like to think that on that day, some people in that crowd realized, I do not value things the way Jesus does. He cares for people more than I do. And now that I've seen that, now that my eyes have been opened, by God's grace, that's going to change. Also, one last thing. You can see in the example of the blind man that recovering and follow and go hand in hand. Like they recover their sight and they follow him. That goes together. If Jesus hears your cry and he restores you, then follow him. There's no halfway. There's no, yes, I trust in him and maybe I'll also follow him. Like, yes, I believe in him intellectually and maybe I'll also worship him. We'll see how that works out. No, it goes together. He opens your eyes so that you can see. He opens your eyes so that you can bear witness. One commentator on this passage sums the whole thing up this way. He says, As Jesus compassionately delivers them from their literal darkness, so he continues on his way to Jerusalem, where in his sacrificial death, he will deliver all of humanity from an even greater darkness, that of the bondage to sin And death. Thus, the cry of the blind men, Lord have mercy on us, becomes in the Kyriolesan of the church's liturgy, the cry for deliverance from sin and its judgment. This healing pericope, this healing passage, thus, may be seen as the gospel in microcosm. Think about that. Before the triumph, before the celebration, before the palm branches are thrown in the air, Jesus preaches the gospel in microcosm, with his hands as he reaches out, he opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus, in Matthew 18, 19, and 20, makes it abundantly clear to us that there is no salvation through our own work. Salvation only comes through God's work. It only comes through God's mercy. And that very same truth is the bedrock of the Reformation that we remember Today as well, J.I. Packer once summarized the whole of Reformed theology in a single simple sentence. God saves sinners. Period. That's it in a nutshell. God saves sinners. Let our eyes be open to this reality because once you see this, once you realize this, then your hopelessness is gone. The work that you cannot perform doesn't matter because he performs that work for you. Your alienation from God is ended. Once you see this, then Jesus' love for you, his compassion for you becomes inescapable. Once you see him, you cannot unsee him. So let the cry of the blind man be our cry forever after. Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Lord, let our eyes be opened. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.